Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Happy New Year, Marjorie. And to you, Claire, how are you doing on this fresh January day? I can't believe that that is the whole of the Christmas shenanigans done and dusted for another year. Okay, but be honest, you have your tree down already, don't you? Yes. Yeah. Can't go back to work with it all up. Is it Boxing Day or the 27th for you? 27th, 28th. I thought I was the grumpy one leaving it down before New Year. And I can't believe some people actually leave them up all the way, what, to Epiphany, the 6th? But you are maybe the, er I know it's to do with holidays, but you are the earliest tree taker downer I know. Well, I think that's only because traditionally we've gone away for New Year. So whether that be to go and stay with friends or, you know, in years gone by to try and meet up with my sister who lives in Australia or, you know, down to see my other sister who's in London. We've always sort of been on the move over New Year and it's not nice to come back after that lovely couple of days after the Christmas chaos to then have to do all the work of taking down the decorations and putting the tree away. Anyway, we're into January. Fresh air, bright blue skies, lots of light, out feeling the crisp air. Probably, dare I say it, some swimming on the cards this month. Days getting longer again. Yeah, all that tacky in my case delightful and classy in your case decor is behind us. Fresh, sharp, searing light. Can't wait for it. So we've got a great story today. It's the first of our new series of commissioned work that's come in for our podcasts. And it's from one of our lead readers, which is always a joy to be able to feature the writing of our very talented band of lead readers. This one's from Lorraine Thompson, and it's called Hazy Shade of Blue. And it fits with our theme this month, which is birds. Yeah, before we get started, I just want to say, send us your bird poems, send us your bird stories. We want to hear about them this month. Will I get us started? Yeah. The kid held up his shorts with one hand and carried a cup of juice in the other. The juice was in a thin plastic cup, the kind that collapses if you squeeze it too hard. So the kid had to concentrate twice over. First, to make sure he didn't crush the cup. Second, to make sure he didn't sloosh his juice. That was a lot of concentration for a little kid. Plus, there was the issue of holding up his shorts, but it was working out just fine until he saw the ball. The ball was a hazy shade of blue. It was begging to be picked up by the kid and carried around by him, like he owned it, like it was a part of him. But if he picked up the ball, he'd either have to give up the juice or let go of the shorts. He stared at the ball for a while longer and then let go of the shorts. The kid scooped up the ball and cradled it in the crook of his arm. Holding it with two hands would be better. Then he could get into the whole ballness of it, maybe throw it into the air and catch it again or toss it from one hand to the other. But he couldn't put the juice down. He'd made a commitment. The juice was part of him before the ball came on the scene. He felt pretty good when he walked off with the ball and the juice. Like he was the A number one boss dude kid. A kid like no other. A kid with a hazy blue ball and a juice. He felt so good that it didn't matter when his shorts started falling down. Not even when they got to his ankles, which didn't take more than a few steps. He still felt good because he had the ball and he had the juice. 
The kid adapted to the situation. He shuffled along with his feet wrapped in the shorts, and before long he was shuffling pretty good. He looped around the play area, along the terrace and down the ramp towards the pool. The pool was the same hazy shade of blue as the ball. Maybe that's why the kid gravitated towards it. A different color of tile formed a narrow path around the pool's edge. The kid got onto this narrow path and shuffled along it, still with the juice in one hand, the ball in the other. He couldn't get any closer to the pool without getting wet, but nobody called out. Nobody said, hey kid, what are you doing so close to the edge of that pool? Are you crazy? Get away from there. Nobody said a thing. The pool was deeper than the kid was tall, with plenty enough water for drowning in. But the kid didn't drown. He didn't even get wet because halfway around the pool, he stopped and had a sip of juice. And when he'd slaked his thirst, he veered off the narrow path and shuffled his way through a forest of white plastic chairs and tables with people clustered all around. The people were talking and smoking and drinking a different kind of juice from the one the kid had. When he got past the forest, the kid had another decision to make. There was a ramp like the one he'd come down on the other side of the pool with a nice gentle slope, just fine for shuffling up when your shorts were at your ankles. But this kid was tough. He made difficult choices. He took the stairs. Should we stop there? I love the imagery and the, the way that we learn so much about this kid's personality just from those those first few paragraphs. He's hilarious. Here's the question that I have for you, which is, it reminds me of the question we ask a lot when we're doing training, when we're reading a particular story. What's the age of this kid? I'm thinking he's maybe eight, nine, that sort of age. We ask this question, if any of you have read this story with us about powder by Tobias Wolf. You, know, you can get halfway through the story and have no sense of the age of this child, the child or the speaker. But here, I mean, it could easily be a toddler, right? I don't know if you would let your toddler wander around the edge of a pool unsupervised, though. Well, we might not, but it depends on what other kind of juice we had going in the cups. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Just thinking back to when my kids were toddlers, that if there was a pool in sight, they would have been in it. There's no way they would have walked carefully around the edge. And the kid also knows they shouldn't get in the water, that the water's a danger, and notices that the water is deeper than their height. I think as well, though, that verbalizing of the kid's decision-making process, that consideration of shorts, ball, juice, the weighing up, feels a bit like an older kid to me. Not old, old, but older than toddler. Yeah, I think so. For me, it felt like maybe the narrator is articulating the decision-making process that younger kids go through. You know, I like the juice, I like the cup, I've got to hold my shorts up. Holding your shorts up, you're right, is not a toddler thing. So it's got to be a kid old enough to know that they should probably not let their shorts drop. But also one young enough to not care that they've made the decision to, to let the shorts go. <laughs> yeah, and I would say my 12-year-old would not yeah. make that decision on it. <laughs> no, I was just thinking so, yeah. Younger than 12, older than four or five, somewhere in there. I love that whole description of, I want to let go because I want to hold the ball. I want to have the whole ballness of it. I feel like it's articulating something, you know, probably that kind of almost mindfulness, you know, that kind of really drilling down into why something feels pleasing to hold. I love the juice too, you know, the idea of it's really hard to carry juice. Yeah. And I recognize that those particular kinds of plastic cups that you can't squish too hard, mm -hmm. you know, or you, you wreck the thing inside. 
I, I can almost hear the crinkle of it, you know, in this story. And ha- so you're right, it must be slightly older child to know that they can't squish the cup. So that takes a certain delicacy of concentration. I remember seeing some parenting program when the kids were really little. And it was, you know, psychology of basically getting your kids to do what you want them to do. And one of the things they were saying is that spilling, which is really common, in toddlers a really uh, the best way to stop kids spilling is not to say don't spill because as soon as you've planted that seed of not spilling in their head they spill but what you say is keep the juice in the cup you know it was much more successful in getting the toddlers to walk across the room with the full cup of juice by saying keep the juice in the cup rather than saying to them don't spill don't spill which i think is quite interesting i'm just wondering if that would work for adults as well because you know as soon as i worry start worrying that i'm going to spill something you're right i spill it but i think part of it is wanting the thing that's in the glass you know wanting the cocktail in this case or coffee hot coffee in the morning And he obviously really wants the juice because he's made this commitment. I love that choice of word. He'd made a commitment. That was one moment where I really noticed the narrator in the story. We don't often pick apart the kind of stories themselves. Before that, I was really in the head of the child in terms of the ballness and the having to make a decision, you know, and you can almost see, you know, a child, you can visualize this child making the decision. But then when he'd made a commitment felt like a really adult thing to say. Or maybe it's just our adult interpretation of what the child was having to do. Because in my head, that child just really wants the cup of juice. That's it. Yeah, but does he want to... I think there's something more to it than that. Because if he, want, if he just wanted the juice, why doesn't he just stop, down the juice, and then have one hard for shorts, one hand for ball? I think it's more than that. And I think that word commitment gives us that sense of it being he wants to take the juice to a place to drink it. Uh, or he wants to show someone the juice. Or he wants to show his parents that he's managed to carry the juice or it it feels that there's something more to it than just wanting the juice for me yeah maybe that's it or he wants to savor it you know that way like my kids I was a mean mom my kids almost never had juice you know so if I had given a toddler or a younger person a cup of juice you know my oldest would have savored it he wouldn't have downed it and wouldn't go for sure so yeah I feel like you're right maybe there's something special about it so so far all we know is that there's a kid with this ball with his shorts around his ankles, shuffling along. He's brave because he's taken the stairs with some shorts. And there are some adults with other kinds of juice, shall we say. But isn't that a funny decision to take the stairs? Well, maybe he just wants rid of the shorts. Maybe he's just like, I've had enough of this. But I love the description of the forest of white plastic chairs too. Like that is, you know, we think of it, we can picture it. I can picture it immediately. But we think of it as... um you know, order or beach. He's describing it as a forest, which is a very, because they're tall, right? So that's why I think this child must be fairly little because he's not looking down on them in the same way as we would be. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. he's And he's having to sort of wend his way in between them. So they must have felt like, and I, I, if I'm picturing the same chairs that um, they, they are quite sticky and leggy and almost tree-ish. And that thing of, I mean, it feels like it's a different time, that thing of talking and smoking and drinking with a kid around, or even a poolside, feels like it's, you know, things were different, well, certainly when I was a girl. You know, of course, my uncles and aunts would say, go get me a cigarette, you know, or go open me a beer from the fridge. You know, I wouldn't now ask a young child to do that. Well, partly because I'm not usually, I would never be probably consuming drink when kids of that age are around in the daytime, although I'm not that much of a goody to choose. But you know what I mean? I'm not really often having a drink in the middle of the day where toddlers are in the house or whatever. But yeah, when I was little, I was regularly sent off to get, you know, I feel like the world has changed in terms of what we do. 
I wondered if it was a sort of holiday scene. The one time when I would maybe have a beer during the day when the kids were running around and be by a pool and Oh, that's a that's a good thought. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Shall we read on and see if we get any more information from the yeah. next section? The shorts were cloth manacles. There wasn't much given them, so the kid had to take the stairs nice and easy. He was halfway up and managing just fine when a woman in the forest spotted him. She left her perch and swooped in, snatching away his juice. The kid barely had time to react before she circled back. This time it was the kid she snatched up. She dropped him at the top of the stairs next to the play area and said something to him. The kid put down the ball. He watched it roll away while the woman pulled up his shorts. She fastened them tight before returning to the forest. The kid watched her go. No longer burdened by the responsibilities of ball, juice or shorts gathering round his ankles, the kid turned his face skywards. Now he felt light, he felt free. He flapped his arms and his feet left the ground. He flapped harder and soon he was soaring over the white plastic forest, flying fast and high as a swift above the pool. And the people clustered all around. Nobody noticed. Nobody said, hey kid, are you crazy? What are you doing there, flying so high and fast like that? Get back down here. But the woman, a shiver went through her. She stood up and glanced around, checking out the pool and the play area and all the places in between. But the kid was nowhere to be seen. When there was nowhere else to look on the ground, she turned her gaze high to the sky, but all she could see was a tiny bird silhouetted against a hazy shade of blue. Oh no, I want more. I want more. (laughs) (laughs) That took a serious turn, didn't it? Wow. Okay. I love the description of the shorts as cloth manacles. Yeah, I, love I don't, I don't know if you've ever done that or been in a situation where you, you're sort of wriggling up and you've got something around your, your ankles and you haven't quite stepped out of them properly. But I seem to remember that from being a kid and maybe getting changed for swimming or something and being a bit too keen and trying to run out to the swimming pool while my shorts or my trousers were still and kicked them off properly. And that's exactly what they feel like. So at that point, I was relaxed and still enjoying it. And then the woman appears. Okay, so I can't decide. I mean, part, okay, let's talk about the woman. I mean, in my sense, the woman's the mum, because otherwise no other w- woman's going to manhandle a child like that. Yeah, but I think this maybe takes us back to this question of, is this a different time? Mm, that's true. Because maybe at the time that you were getting beers for your uncles as a child, someone would have done that. Yeah, maybe. Saw some kid with his shorts down around his ankles and pulled them up and tied them. But generally, I think... You know, the only one who's going to leave a forest of adults who are smoking and drinking is likely the mum of a child. But maybe you're right, I don't know. But what happens after that is really interesting to me. It kind of, because I feel like it's, you know, what she's done is taken away his sense of the things he's in charge of or the things. Yeah, independence just goes. Yeah, gone. Like I was carrying a ball, I had some juice, I had made a decision to do it this way. She takes all of that off him. And what's interesting is in the story, 
he effectively becomes a bird, right? But for me in the story, the things that he's holding are good things, they're things that he wants to hold. So he's not being unmanacled, really. You know, he's not being unchained. He's He's been disempowered, really. Mm. And somehow that disempowering frees him, which I find the curious part of the story. Does it free him or does it just unleash him from the things that were holding him into that time and place in the sense of now there's nothing really for him to stay for? His ball's gone, his juice is gone. He was quite enjoying shuffling around in his shorts and that's been taken away. So why why does he bother staying? You know, for me it feels like he's off he's off to find a different place where he can get another ball or more juice. And Yeah, and I mean I guess the positive way of looking at the story is thinking about the things that we think we want you know, the things that we have and we think we want and we think we need to hold are in fact the things pinning us to this place or this life. And if you are able to remove them one at a time or all at once in this case, we don't know what will happen. It may well free us up to fly off into a different place. And it becomes a question of whether he wants to be pinned to that time and place or whether he wants to be off seeking something else. And I think there's a contentment in him when he has his three things. And those words that you pointed out, you know, the commitment, you suddenly take a different turn because, you know, commitment can be something you want to make or commitment can be something you have to stick to. Whereas the ball, I feel like he really wanted the ball because he wanted to put the juice down so he could put two arms around the ball. But it sounds like it's just rolled away to a place where he can see it. So in some ways... You know, you could argue that he's made the decision not to pick it back up again. It's almost like she spoiled it. Yeah. She's in some way sort of corrupted the purity of his ball and now she's taking his juice off him and he just doesn't want it anymore. Well, we all know that, right? When we're having a kind of very, a moment, you know, of our own, whether it's, you know, a little reverie, as it were, where you're in your own world doing something, whether it's, in my case, writing or having a walk or whatever, and then someone pierces that, you know, kind of bubble, and it's just lost. You can't get it back. So maybe that's, as you say, maybe it's it's changed. Something about it has changed. But then, you know, there was a real part of me that the, the dire part of me that worries that he's fallen in the pool. Well, I'm I'm relieved that she goes looking and can't find him. But the cynic in me also thinks, you know, adults when they're talking. I remember this as a child, and I I don't remember it well enough with my children, that adults can talk forever, and as a child it can seem forever to wait for them. So when she goes looking, it could have been hours, you know. But there's something in the language of the, he's no longer burdened by responsibilities. He turns his face skywards, he feels light, he feels free, that there's a positivity about that. Yeah, I mean, that's what I mean, although I think it could be read in a, in a dark way, there's a part of me that thinks, well, actually, each of these things is a metaphor for the things that hold us down. And although we think they're the things that, you know, we need or want, in fact, when they go, we're freer for it. You know, I love that reading because I'm a person who really doesn't like owning as much as I do already, you know, I'm forever wanting to get rid of things. And I suspect, you know, Going back to our initial chat, that's why Christmas, I love the Christmas decorations, but also I want them down after a while because it just it's too much, you know, it's too much stuff. So part of me thinks, well, the message I want to read into this is the things you think you want are actually the things that are holding you, holding you down, holding you back. And somehow he's often doing a completely different thing. Yeah, I'd like to think of him off in another place with a Red Bull and a cup of Coke. <laughs> <laughs> We've upgraded the juice to Coke. Yeah, and not worrying about it. Now looking at that language with the nobody said, nobody noticed, it feels quite sad, actually, that nobody's paying attention. 
to exactly the same, particularly around the pool. Because there's no chance now that if you've got a toddler wandering around or a young person wandering around an edge of a pool, the adults around it would be looking to see where the other, where the parents are, where the caretaker of that child is. You know, even now, if I, if I see a child in in the hills or you know, even at the in the braids, you know, on their yeah, own, yeah, or or at the beach, I'm yeah, I'm, to, I'm, I'm often see, just making sure, yeah. Where's where's your adult? Like, you know, you're too young to be running up the Pentlands on your own or whatever. Although I'm not I'm not sure I would physically these days pick that child up or physically restrain them in any way or you know, the way that the the woman in this story does. No, although I have I have asked children, where are your parents? You know, where do you have a parent? Who are you here with? Partly because I feel like it sounds it's gendered, but I feel like an approach from a middle aged woman is far less stressful if a child is lost than a man, for sure. You know, my my girls would have run a mile from a strange man, but they m- might have stopped if a middle-aged woman said, are you all right? So, yeah, I do sometimes, probably, you know, two or three times in my life, I've stopped a child to say, are you all right? Where's your parent? Uh, once in the supermarket here in Morningside, there was just a child wandering around lost, obviously, and crying, a very little child, two or three. And eventually I sat with the child and the dad came and found me. Because I thought, well, eventually this person's going to work out that their child is gone. (laughs) But, you know, the child was really distressed. So, yeah, I didn't feel bad just sitting with that child to make sure. But, yeah, let's hope for for more with this child. Or maybe at least has gone back to something that feels comfortable or happy. We'd love to know what you all think about what happens to this boy. But I love the description of him as a bird. The idea that we somehow give children wings. I love the whole story. I thought it was really beautifully crafted and just what I love, you know, lots of wondering and speculation and gaps. Yeah, and in fact, although I know Lorraine, we know Lorraine, it felt very American in some ways to me too. It felt really easy for me to read in my accent, especially that A number one boss dude kid part. I was glad you got that paragraph in in the reading because it sounded good in your accent. Shall we look at the poem? Yeah. I think it's one you've chosen this week. It is, and no one will be surprised to know that it's a John Glenday poem. Thank you, John, for letting us use it. It's come from his latest publication, which is his collected poems, which are out now. But it's called Bird Sighs for the Air. Bird sighs for the air. There are those who would insist air sighs for the bird. All that bluster and expanse, nothing more than a reaching out towards the least fraction of itself. A flicker of wren through summer briar, one note from a firecrest song. Everything is the shape of the longing it was built to hold. Even the olive wears the curve of the stone it carries in its heart. And you, your empty arms confess to everything they held once and then lost, or longed to hold, but never came to hold. Your arms, filled all those things you are holding now, things you desired, things you have yet to lose. It's just such a perfect match for the story, I think. Yeah, and this poem just gives me the shivers every time I read it. It's just perfectly done. It's in five stanzas of three lines. So it even has a central stanza, it has that shape at its, at its core. 
Yeah, and I love, I mean, I chose it because we were looking for a poem about a bird, but also that there's lines about empty arms and the arms wanting to hold the things that you might have lost or longed for. Felt like it had a, a natural connection to the boy holding things. And also that, that ending about things you desired, things you have yet to lose, I thought was a beautiful fit with the idea of, you know, you think you desire it. But it's not till you lose it that you actually realize you don't need it. Well, for me, it's the opposite. It's things you desire and we're all going to lose them all. You know, that there's only a limited time that we have any of these things and any of these people. So, you know, it's a reminder that what we think we need and what we, who we think we need and are, are really only here for this short period. And I, I say that because I've heard John say it at reading for our, one of our groups in the botanics, you know, that there's, there's just, we're here in this form, his view is we're here in this form for this very short period. Um, so it, it harkens back to that conversation he had with our group there. I love that. So at the center, very center of the poem are those lines that I love the most, which I think is interesting that he's put them in the center. And John often does this in his work, that there's a kind of a kicker line that tells you the truth in the poem somewhere. And they are these ones, everything is the shape of the longing it was built to hold. Even the olive wears the curve of the stone it carries in its heart. And I love that it's in the middle. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, and I hadn't noticed until you pointed it out, you know, it's the it's like the babushka doll, isn't it? It's like the stone in the olive, in the line, in the middle of the poem. And that somehow, I mean, I hate the idea of this, I have to say, but I somehow that we are all the shape of the things that we wish for or want is, uh, is a terrible thought, I think. You know, that w- somehow our, our characters are crafted around uh, desire, in, rather than you know something that we have more control over, but, but that that line there, um, everything is the shape of the longing it was built to hold, gives a certain absolution of responsibility, doesn't it? Because if you if it was built to hold that, it was built by a, another power, a greater force. So that that longing is there's nothing you could do about it. Yeah, I guess then then the thing that sh- saves it for me, I mean, not that it needs saving, um, is that the, the next line about the olive and the stone is that, you know, the reality is the stone is, you know, the thing that creates the next life. And so, yes, we carry, you know, the next life within us, or, you know, some of us do, or, or at least the things we're giving life to, you know, whether that be children or, you know, projects or whatever lives beyond us. Um, we carry it. So it sort of saves it for me. But the last bit of the poem very much is about, for me, of course, about motherhood and the things we lose and the things we gain. And I love the balance in that first stanza, bird size for the air. And then it's a question mark. There are those who would insist air size for the bird. That just feels so beautifully balanced and just that whole idea that you, I think you often see in John's poetry about the interdependence of things and how one thing relies on the other or feeds into the other and, and just that whole, um, what is it called, chaos theory? When you talk about a butterfly's wings um, fluttering in Australia causing a tornado in California, you know, and, and a lot for me, a lot of John's poetry has that constant interlinking and one thing leading to another or or the very big pointing to the very small which you're right often poems do the opposite you know we're we're using the small as a very 
as a metaphor for something bigger, but here it's the air looking for the tiny thing, you know, a flicker or a note, one note. Um, it's just as small as it can get, this huge expanse. Yeah, as you say, I love the kind of mirroring of that to the you. You know, your empty arms confess. Beautiful. And there's a little epigram just below the title in Latin, which I cheated because I do not have Latin, and looked it up. It's sunt lacrimi rerum, and it means there are tears for things. I had read the poem without looking it up, and then when I went back, I thought, oh, that's just perfect. And it's from Iniad by Virgil. Just again, John is just so classically well read <laughs> that he drops just these little nuggets in from time to time. Um, I always think about his Icarus poem and he just sort of sprinkles these things, which I always have to go and look up. Um, but I'm never disappointed <laughs> when I do. I'm glad you didn't say that until after we talked about the poem, because I think you know, it would have become about losing objects and suddenly exactly. I'm thinking about refugees exactly. and all the things we've lost and long to hold but never came to hold. And But in fact, if you take that away, it can be about ambition or the lack of it and hope. And also, yeah, the worrying central stanza in the middle about, you know, how I was going to say how ambition can create us, but actually it can also make us, you know, I think of the generations that have come before me about those who are incredibly successful and allowed me to have the life that I have had so far, genuinely because of that longing, longing for something bigger, better, brighter, whether they got there or not, they certainly allowed that momentum allowed the, the generations behind them to have more. And I suspect that felt really keenly by you in your own circumstances of your, your dad ha arriving in a country with absolutely nothing and then creating this successful legal career and opportunity f for you and your brother. But I feel it in probably a less intense way, but, you know, my mum being the first person from her street in the mining town in Lanarkshire that she came from to go to university, you know, and paving the way for, for that to be you know, something that was within my line of sight. Yeah. And I think, I mean, even go one generation back from that, because my parents were the first two in their families to go to university, but having parents that allowed it, maybe I might, in my case, I was going to say encouraged it is too far for both of my sets of grandparents, but allowed it to happen, took some doing and some thinking from the communities that they came from. So I suspect that will be true of your mom's family too, even just letting her go mm. or not blocking her. Yeah, and not expecting her to become a wage earner at 16. Yeah, exactly. And the so, sacrifice that that cost the rest of the family. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and my family's too. So, but then it is that kind of longing for something more, you know, and maybe, you know, by longing, we can think of it as curiosity or ambition rather than a desperate need for the object or more stuff or, you know, riches, as it were. Yeah, and without it, what are we? You know, but blobs on the te on the sofa watching TV. Not that I'm against a bit of telly, but you know, without wanting to learn and grow, what are we? Yeah, I I just love the way John sticks these big, heavy kicker lines in the middle of poems that are about very specific things. So I feel like he, in my mind, he earns them. You know, and he goes from the thing that we all recognize: the bird wishing for the air for flight or for song or whatever, to something really big. And then he brings it back down to us, to people, to arms. You know, he takes it right into the reader. I love the way it connects to the story too. 
And as ever with John's work, you know, there's no words in there that are particularly difficult or that the language in itself is so simple, but it belies just so much complexity of thought and ideas. And, and that I think that's the beauty of his writing. We've said it before, but I think that's what I love about it. Mm, he's a firm open book favorite. We call his work simple, but there's so much in it. So we can't recommend it to you highly enough, but also Thank you again, John, for letting us read and chat about your work so often at Open Book, and particularly today. I think that's just about us for today. Thank you so much for having us in your ears, and we look forward to joining you again next month when we'll have a new story to share with you and some poetry to talk about too. Bye.